If you're a guest today, why, we are delighted that you're here, and I want you to know that we are in a series that we started last fall called Inspired, and it is taking every book of the Bible as we come to it and exploring it in an overview. Uh, And this morning, we have arrived at the book of Acts in the New Testament, uh, the only history book that we find in the New Testament. In 1685, Johann Sebastian Bach was born, uh, and he became one of the most prolific writers and composers of music during his time. Most of his works, if you know anything about them, are explicitly biblical. As a matter of fact, uh, the missionary Albert Schweitzer once referred to him as the fifth gospel, right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Amazingly, during a a, a one, three-year period of his career, he wrote, conducted, orchestrated, and performed with his choir and orchestra a new cantata every week. His impact on music is still being felt 300 years later. But here's what I want you to see about Bach's work. At the beginning of every authentic Bach manuscript, one will find the letters J.J. Now, that's Latin for Jesu Juva, which means Jesus help me. And at the end of every original manuscript appear the letters S.D.G., Now, that's Latin for soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Jesus helped me at the beginning, to the glory of God alone at the end. That's a pretty good summary of the book of Acts. Everything that happened in the ancient church was accomplished by the help of the Lord himself. And everything that the people did was to the glory of God alone. I might suggest that's really a pretty good goal for every Christian. That's a good way to live your life. Lord, I need your help. I cannot do it on my own. And I want to live my life to your glory alone. May I suggest to you this morning that that is our greatest purpose in life, to glorify God. And what God has asked us to do helps us accomplish that. Now, in a sense... The New Testament really begins with the book of Acts. I know our New Testaments actually begin with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in a sense, Acts is the first book of the New Testament, here's why. Jesus lived out his entire earthly life up to his death, burial, and resurrection under the Old Testament covenant. What was it that secured the New Testament? Why, it was his death, burial, and resurrection. So everything that happened prior to that was still under the Old Testament law. And so when we come to the book of Acts, it's really the first full book of the New Testament era, and it is an incredible book that that gives us beginnings. And and for that reason, I liken it to the New Testament equivalent of Genesis. Genesis means beginnings. And in the book of Acts, we find several incredible new beginnings. As a matter of fact, if you are looking for a new spiritual beginning in your own life, May I suggest you study Acts because it tells us the most important new beginning, and that is how to make Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life. Now, I I wish we had time to go through the entire book. We do not this morning. But I just want to give you a couple snapshots this morning of new beginnings in the book of Acts that are important to us this morning. Uh, and, And the first one is how the book of Acts opens. Uh, Acts opens with the disciples waiting in Jerusalem. Waiting for what? They're not sure. Jesus had told them when he got ready to ascend to the Father, you wait 
until my spirit comes upon you. Now, that had been 10 days ago. On this particular Sunday morning of, of Acts chapters 1 and 2, it had been 10 days since Jesus left, and it had been 50 days since his resurrection. And on this particular day, the city of Jerusalem was crowded. Jews from all over the Roman Empire were present for the Jewish festival called Pentecost. And that, folks, is when it happened. At about 9 o'clock in the morning, about the time that a lot of churches gathered to worship, the Spirit of God descended upon the city. There was the sound of a mighty rushing wind, but there was no wind. There was what appeared above the heads of the apostles, two twin flames, but there was no fire and then the apostles began to speak in languages they had not learned, and all the people that were gathered around heard them speaking in their own native dialects. Now, I don't know if the miracle was in the voice of the apostle or in the ear of the listener, or maybe it was some of both. I just know that there were more dialects in Jerusalem that day than there were apostles, and so maybe they spoke in two or three dialects, or people just heard as God interpreted the words in their ears. It doesn't matter how the miracle was done. It was a great miracle. And, and the Bible says that what the, they were talking about were the mighty works of God. Now, all the Jewish people that were gathered there that day would have understood the mighty works of God. What really got their attention, what really surprised them was the fact of who it was that was sharing these stories. These were Galileans, and Galileans were not known as educated or eloquent people. And yet these guys, some of whom had been fishermen, were standing up and espousing on God's Word, and the people were utterly amazed. And, and as they stood there sort of scratching their heads, thinking, what in the world does this mean? Peter took the opportunity to preach the very first sermon about Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, I've got about a half a dozen different days in history that if there was ever a time machine, I would choose to go back and visit. This is one of those days. I would love to have been there on the day that the, birth, that the church was born. I think Peter was at the top of his game, and I think he preached with incredible passion. And when the message was over, the response of the people who were listening was, was powerful. Uh, we read about it in Acts chapter 2. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for, who, and for all who are afar off. That's us. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow, 3,000. Now, occasionally our attendance on a Sunday morning will top 3,000, which includes the children that are here. And those are always exciting moments. There are more people that come in through these doors, but on any given Sunday, that, that's a great attendance. On one day, on the very first day that the church existed, 3,000 people were baptized. And then you go over to chapter 4, and it says 5,000 men were now a part of the church, not counting the women and the children. And then they simply stopped recording the number because the church was explosive in its growth. And this, folks, at the moment is all in the city of Jerusalem. This is a large congregation. Now, I, I got to tell you this morning, I love a large church. 
I love a small church too. Uh, I grew up in a small church. Uh, some of my fondest memories come from a small church. I've ministered in small churches, including this one. When Elsie and I moved here in 1981, this church w- was a church of 80 people. And those 80 people who are still with us are godly, wonderful people to whom everybody in this building owes their gratitude for their heartfelt faithfulness. I wouldn't trade those memories and moments for anything. But but there's something about a large gathering that is so uplifting. When I walk through the halls of this building on Sunday morning, I am encouraged. I hope you are as well. When you visit a congregation who's been around for a century and the attendance is small and the youth group is made up of people in their 60s, it it just does not breathe hope. You know what I mean? Now, I honor those people. I love those people. I know congregations with people whose faithfulness is an inspiration to me. I take nothing away from that. But it just doesn't breathe hope. But when I walk through these halls here and I see kids and I see teens and I see families and I see people loving on each other, I hear laughter, I I am just encouraged because my hope for the future is buoyed and and, and it is strong because I see that it's not about one generation. It's about the future, and that excites me. And I love the fact that in a large congregation, I I don't feel alone in my faith. You know, you get 3,000 people here, and you say, hey, this is a good number, and we're just one church out of dozens and dozens of churches throughout this community and region. And, And when you stop and think that we share this common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's encouraging and hopeful. And I love a large church because no one family or no one individual or no one little group can control everything that happens. And that's really a good thing. Whenever 3,000 gather here on a Sunday morning, I think of the first day of the church's existence. Now, you're probably thinking, wow, I wish I could have been a part of the early church because I suspect their faith was just so strong that doubts never entered. You know, sometimes we have doubts, and and sometimes we have questions that we don't seem to have an answer for, but we have this tendency to think that the early church, man, they were powerhouse faithful people who didn't deal with doubts. And if you think that, you're wrong. And and I'm thrilled to death that that Luke includes in the book of Acts this story that we find in chapter 12. It's one of my favorites. Uh, It begins rather harshly. Herod has arrested James, the apostle, John's brother, you know, James and John who were fishermen, and he's beheaded him. Now, that struck fear into the entire church. He's the first one to be martyred uh, for his faith as as of the apostles. And and Herod discovers that this is so pleasing to the Jewish leadership, he arrests Peter and is is going to uh, execute Peter just like he did James, except for the fact that it's during the Passover, and so he's going to wait until this Jewish feast is over uh, before he executes Peter. So there's 24 hours, and the church gathers... I'm sure in lots of different places, but they're gathering to pray for Peter's release. That night, and and by the way, they put on extra guards. Peter is chained between two guards, so there is no possible chance of him escaping this fate. And an angel comes to the prison, and and the chains fall off of Peter, uh, and, and Peter is awakened by this. Now, stop and think about this. Peter is going to die in 24 hours or less, and he's sound asleep in the prison, chained to two guards. 
What does that tell you about Peter? It, it, it tells me that Peter thought, okay, I die, no big deal. My faith isn't in this world. My faith is in Christ. Peter was living out what Paul would later write to the church in Philippi. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Peter knew that if he got to live, he got to serve Christ. He knew that if he died, he got to go be with Christ. So he slept. Could you sleep if that was your circumstance this morning? Is your faith such that you could sleep in the prison house? Well, the angel wakes him up. The chains fall. The guards do not wake up. The gates, uh, the doors of the prison swing open. The gates out of the prison swing open. The angel says, Peter, get dressed. Put your coat on. Put your sandals on. You've got a job to do. And, and, and the angel leads him out. All, the whole time, Peter thinks he's seeing a vision. You know, and it's not until the cold air hits him at the end of the street and the angel disappears that he realizes this is no dream. I'm really out of prison. And so Peter hurries off to one of the houses where the church was meeting. They were having a prayer group uh, to, to pray for his release. And there's an outer gate of the courtyard, and he bangs on the outer gate. Now, the, the church leaders are inside praying for Peter's release, and he begins to bang on the gate on the outside. A servant girl by the name of Rhoda hears the knocking, and she goes out, and because of all the fear that was going on in the church, she whispers, who is it? And Peter says, it's Peter. May I come in? And she just gets so excited, she takes off running back in the house, leaves Peter on the other side of the gate, and she interrupts the prayer meeting, and she says, guess what? Peter's at the gate. Do you know what they said? Rhoda, you're out of your mind. And she says, no, 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 Peter's outside. And they argue back and forth, and finally they go out, and it is Peter. They are astounded. This is great, folks. The early church is praying that Peter be released, and they don't have any faith that it's going to happen. You'd expect that the book of Acts would say something like this, and the pious believers raised their voices in sweet thanksgiving, never doubting that Peter would show up. Ha! They were as surprised as we are when God answers our prayer. I am encouraged to know that the believers from the very beginning of the church's birth have struggled with the same things that we struggle with, and God, despite our lack of faith sometimes, always comes through. Now, if you listen to the naysayers, you're probably convinced that the best days of the church are in the past. And now, it is true that hundreds of churches close their doors permanently every year. So you can either throw up your hands, shake your head, and conclude that it's all downhill from here for the kingdom, and I don't want to be a part of something that's sliding downhill, or you can say, I'm not sure that's right. You see, if, if you believe the naysayers, um, you're wrong. I think God's greatest work is still ahead. Re folks, will you remember, God has no other plan to reach out to the world, to reach the lost, and through the church. And will you please remember his promise that not even death or the grave or hell itself will overcome the church? I want you to know that hundreds of new congregations are started every year right here in America, and thousands are springing up around the world every year, every week, sometimes every day. Dozens of churches come into existence Today, there are some of the largest churches we've ever seen in modern history. People in the church make the greatest difference in times of crisis, too. They are the most generous with benevolent giving. They are the most accepting of other people. They are the most encouraging to those who struggle. 
Why? Because God did not create a sterile institution, a social club with membership dues, or a civic organization with a secret handshake or a funny hat. God created a living, breathing, relational organism. It was designed and created by God for us, built up through us, and destined to be lived out and shared among us. The church is not exclusive, it's inclusive. Whosoever will may come. It serves a perfect God, but itself is imperfect. And aren't you glad? Because if the church was perfect, I couldn't come, and neither could you. It has the grandest purpose in the world to tell others of the eternal grace and forgiveness of God in Christ. It does what the United Nations cannot do. It makes believers of every nation and culture truly one. It does what civil rights legislation seems inadequate to do. It makes believers of every race and color equal together. Where else can you turn to find genuine forgiveness and acceptance? Where else can you go to find a reason worth living for and dying for? Where else can you find a greater hope than that of eternal life in the presence of God in a place like heaven? Don't tell me the church has seen her best days. The best is still yet to be. Aren't you glad that God built his church? Where would we be? without this family. Well, in addition to that grand new beginning, there is a second new beginning that crops up in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. It is a story so powerful, so life-changing that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, focuses on it three times in three chapters, chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 15. This story is the single longest running narrative in the book of Acts, 66 continuous verses. Some call it the second Pentecost. Some call it the Gentile Pentecost. Even Peter himself compared it to the Pentecost when the church was born. It's the story of a man by the name of Cornelius. You say, well, who is Cornelius? Well, he was a Roman centurion living in Caesarea, stationed there at the time, a devout, God-fearing man, a Gentile, but who loved the Lord and genuinely sought God's will for his life. And the Bible says that he was sincere and that he was good. During his time of prayer one afternoon at 3 o'clock, an angel appeared to Cornelius. And this is what we read in Acts 10. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He's staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. And so Cornelius did that. Now the next day before these guys arrive, the apostle Peter is up on top of the house, and he goes into this vision. And the vision includes... Um, a sheet that comes down out of heaven. It comes down three times. It's filled with all kinds of unclean animals according to the Old Testament. And the voice says, "Kill, uh, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to eat something unclean. And then the voice says, call nothing unclean that I have made clean. Well, the sheet disappears. And just as, as the third time it goes away, there is a knock at the door. And these men show up and they ask to speak to Peter. And, uh, and they tell him what they're up to. Peter against his comfort zone, goes with these Gentiles. 
Now, as, as a good Jew, you're not even supposed to talk to a Gentile. You're never supposed to go into a Gentile's home. And so now he's going to make a, a journey with these Gentiles. So Peter's, Peter's comfort is way, way out there at this point in time. When he reaches Cornelius's house, this is what we read in Acts 10.25. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. See, we're all equal in the kingdom. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are all well, well aware of the fact that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objections. May I ask why you sent for me? Peter is uncomfortable but faithful. And they explain why they've come. And so Peter begins to speak to them and teach them about the resurrection of Christ. And while Peter's in the middle of his message, the Holy Spirit comes upon the house of Cornelius like he had come upon the city of Jerusalem. And these folks begin to speak in languages they had not learned. And Peter is astonished. And his response is simply this, then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Folks, history was never the same again. The church, the church had been exclusively Jewish up to this point in time. And Acts chapter 10 opens the door to the rest of the world, to most all of us in this room, Cornelius was the changing of our history. And, and can I tell you, the name of Cornelius doesn't ever appear again in the New Testament after this. It was that one grand new beginning that set the stage for a global endeavor. Now, throughout church history, the church has sometimes been resistant to those who don't look, talk, or think like those inside the walls. I guess, I guess that partly explains why we have hundreds of different denominations around the globe today. For some in the church, the idea of being with others of different backgrounds, culture, and race is way out of their comfort zones. I, I've never quite understood that attitude. I am a better person when I am exposed to others in the kingdom from around the world. Their faith challenges my faith. Their sufferings make me ever more grateful for God's blessings. Their sacrifices teach me that I need to be more sacrificial. And I will tell you this, this congregation grows stronger and I believe better and more prepared for the future every time a person from a different country, a different race, a different language, or a different culture walks through these doors back here. After all, the living Lord, Jesus Christ, whom I serve, spent his life quite differently than mine. Jesus and I do not share a common heritage. He was Jewish. I'm a Gentile. We do not share a common language. He spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. I speak English, and not so good sometimes. The Lord and I do not share a common race. He is Semitic. I am. Am Caucasian. And yet I can tell you that he is the central figure, the most important person in my life. 
Can I remind you this morning that one color is not more desirable than another? One race is not more loved by God, nor more needed in the church, nor more anticipated in heaven. All of us, however, do have one thing in common, and that is we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And it makes no difference whether you are male or female, red, yellow, black, or white, rich or poor, formerly educated or experienced educated, handsome or homely, athletic or clumsy, popular or unpopular, liberal or conservative, we are all lost without the Savior. And in the church, we are all family because of His grace. He welcomes the foreigner, and aren't you glad? Because all of us were foreigners to the first church. And because God loves life at any stage and at any age, and because God loves all people of any color and any class, shouldn't we reflect Him in the way that we live in this world and treat those around us? Dr. Martin Luther King once said, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Of all places where the barriers of race, class, and culture ought to be visibly absent, it ought to be the church. We who are the body of Christ must lead the way for the rest of the world to follow. Peter set the example 2,000 years ago. We need to keep that example relevant in the 21st century. Acts tells us that Cornelius was a good and sincere man, but I'm here to tell you that didn't save him. You see, being sincere enough or good enough is simply not sincere enough and good enough. Never has been, never will be. I know folks who assuage their guilt by rationalizing that they are as good as other people who are in the church, and that's probably true. I know people who are not Christians who act and live in ways sometimes that are as good, sometimes maybe even better than those of us in the church, but that has nothing to do with salvation. You see, it only takes one sin to separate us from God, and, I, and none of us here are guilty of only one sin. We'd be lucky if we were guilty of only one sin a day. You see, it's not about us being good enough. It's not about us being sincere enough. But the good news is that God is sincerely good enough. And he has made possible salvation through his sacrifice. Peter in Acts chapter 10 said, then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. I will be eternally grateful that God does not show favoritism, that God is not prejudiced, that God is not biased, that we are all his and one family in his name. Next month, marks the 52nd anniversary of astronaut John Glenn's historic flight to be the first American to orbit the Earth. Now, I have read, back in the early days of the, of the NASA program, I've read that, that no one at NASA could tell him how many orbits he would make, and, and that's true, when he went, he wasn't sure how many orbits he would make, or exactly where he would land, or how long it would be to uh, take to pick him up. They assured him it would be within 72 hours. And to cover all the bases, this is what I've read. I don't know if it's so or not, but I've read that he had tucked into a zippered pocket on his spacesuit 
a small speech translated into several languages phonetically. And it simply read like this, I am a stranger, I come in peace, take me to your leader and there will be a massive reward for you in eternity. Now, if indeed he did have a speech like that, it was never used. After three orbits, Friendship 7 splashed down in the Atlantic and John Glenn was rescued and entered the history books of American history. But I'm here to tell you this morning that only one can promise a massive reward in eternity. And it's not NASA. And it's not NASA's job to promote that message either. It's ours, the church. This then is our purpose, to help as many people from across the globe hear of the grace through Jesus Christ.